So, Lord, this morning we pray that you would open our spiritual eyes. God, that whatever struggles, whatever battles that people in this room and those who are joining us online have been fighting, God, that you would open their eyes to see that they don't fight alone. Lord, that you would help them to not just know with their minds, but to believe with their spirits that you have already won the victory, that death is defeated and you, King Jesus, are alive, and that while these battles might still rage around us, the victory is yours and therefore ours. And God, that you do have us surrounded by your presence and your angels who guard us. And God, that you have given us brothers and sisters in arms. That we are not alone. That you are for us and not against us if we are walking as your children in your spirit. God, we pray this morning that you would minister to your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This time, Nina's going to come and share a scripture reading with us. And while she's coming, what I'd like to have happen um, is if the kids... We're, today is the first Sunday of the month, so we don't have any children's church downstairs. But if the kids who would like to, would you come up here to the front for a little bit while Nina reads the scripture? And um, we're going to have a little bit of a, of a children's focused time. So kids, will you come up here and join me if you're want, willing? Come on. They're being shy. Come on up, guys. Anybody who's willing, come up here and just have a seat with me on the floor while she reads the scripture. Come on.
okay? And you're all in this race. Now, I want you to imagine with me what would be the most amazing prize that you would want to get for winning this race? Taco Tierra. Dude, I'm with you. This is Come on, Zach. Don't be hanging. Not in front of all these people. Thank you. All right, so Taco Tierra. Are you going to say something, Casey? What else would you want to be the prize? Taco Tierra, too. Okay, somebody else? What do you want to be the prize that you guys win if you all win the race? Money? All right. Okay, so here we go. Team Children of Grace Fellowship Church have entered a marathon, and they're entering as a team, and if they reach the finish line, they receive an unlimited supply for a whole year of Taco Tierra and $100 each. You motivated? Des acts like, okay, I'm in. All right, you guys are ready? So, now, you start this race. And as you start the race, and there's other people in the race, right? You know, you've got to all finish together to win this prize. You see a puppy alongside of the racetrack. Oh, a puppy, right? Now, let's think about it for a minute. If we stop to play with the puppy, do you think we're going to reach the end of the race in time to get the top of Sierra and the $100? Wesley wants to say yes. But the older and wiser are saying, Yes, steal the puppy. Oh, no! We can't steal the puppy because Jesus would not be okay with that. We can't take the puppy with us. What do we have to do if we want the Taco Tierra and the $100? Ignore the puppy and what? Keep running the race, right? Because we've got to get where if we want that year of Taco Tierra and $100. The finish line. Now, here's the thing. Jesus tells us in the scripture, in the Bible, that being a Christian is like running a race. And in the same way, when we're a Christian running the race, we don't run by ourselves, do we? Okay, so now let's go back to this race that we're in. We've passed the puppy obstacle, all right? But now, Zach trips and falls. What are we going to do? We're in this race together. What do we do? <laughs> what are we going to do, Michaela? Help him up, right? Because we want him to get an unlimited supply of Taco Tierra and $100 too, right? So we keep running. Okay, so as Christians, we're in a race. We're in it together. There's going to be some puppies along the path. Some things that might distract us. That might try to get us off of the track. But what do we have to do as Christians who are running a race? We gotta keep going. We gotta keep running. But here's the thing: is the prize at the end of the race as a Christian taco tier and a hundred bucks? What do you think the prize is that we're running for as Christians? What's the finish line? What? Oh, come on! No, you're still in taco tier mode. He said nachos. What do you guys think? What's the prize as Christians that we're racing for? Oh, we're still on Taco Tierra. Can I tell you guys there's a prize that's better than Taco Tierra? And you guys know I like Taco Tierra, right? The prize that we're racing for as Christians is heaven to be with Jesus forever. You want to know what's so awesome about heaven? You won't even need Taco Tierra. I'm not saying it won't be there. I'm saying you won't need it. 
Can you think about that? What would it be like to never get hungry? You know that Jesus said that he's the bread of life, that he feeds our spirits and our souls, and in heaven that's the only bread we're going to need? Is just him. It doesn't sound possible, does it? But it is. So we're running a race. The finish line is to get to where Jesus will be with us forever. And we've got to stay focused. We've got to keep our eyes on the prize, and we've got to help other people, if they trip and fall, to help them to keep running with us. All right, will you guys go back to your seats? Will you guys give them a, a hand for uh, participating this morning? I want to read this passage that we've heard read already this morning one more time out of the Amplified Version. And if you're not familiar with the Amplified, I didn't want it to be read in Amplified the first time because the Amplified can get a little bit overwhelming and confusing. The reason being that it adds a whole bunch of words in parentheses, but that sometimes those words are really helpful because what the Amplified Version attempts to do is to unpack some of the nuances of meaning behind the words in their original language, to give them nuance and context so that we can dig a little bit deeper. So we've heard this right out of the NIV. I want to read it to you now out of the Amplified. It says, The end and culmination of all things is near. Therefore, be sound-minded and self-controlled for the purpose of prayer. Stay balanced and focused on the things of God so that your communication will be clear, reasonable, specific, and pleasing to him. Above all, have fervent and unfailing love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. It overlooks unkindness and unselfishly seeks the best for others. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, just as each one of you has received a special gift, a spiritual talent, an ability graciously given by God. Employ it in serving one another as is appropriate for good stewards of God's multifaceted grace, faithfully using the diverse, varied gifts and abilities granted to Christians by God's unmerited favor. Whoever speaks to the congregation is to do so as one who speaks the oracles, the utterances, the very words of God. Whoever serves the congregation is to do so as one who serves by the strength which God abundantly supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified, honored, and magnified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The end is near. What kind of images come into your mind when you hear that phrase? The end is near. Can I tell you the first image that comes into my mind? It's of a picture of a street preacher holding up a sign on a corner that says the end is near. That's the first image that I have. And when I think about the end, I want to help you understand that there are two ways, really, for us to picture the end. There are two kinds of pictures in our minds that we might have when we think about the end of the world. The first picture is a picture of termination. It's the idea of the world being finished. It's the limit at which it ceases to be. 
And can I tell you this morning that that's the only picture that a worldly person, someone who doesn't know Jesus, can have when they think about the end of the world? Um, Derek and I were talking just yesterday that because of current events, we're already seeing the trailers coming out for all kinds of end of the world kinds of movies, right? Because people are talking and thinking about the end. But in those apocalyptic, end-of-the-world style movies, what is it that the main characters are always trying to do to escape the end? To get away from it somehow. The asteroid that hits and the tsunamis that come and they're trying to get into the bunker or they're trying to get to the mountaintop. It's always about trying to avoid the end of the world. And as someone who doesn't know Jesus, that is the mentality. It's a fear-based mentality that says, I don't want this world to end. I don't want it to come to its finish, to its termination, because then everything is gone. Now, is that true of the end that is near? Absolutely. This world, Scripture tells us, ultimately, it will be destroyed in fire. It will all burn. There won't be any escape. This is not one of those end-of-world movies where suddenly the cure is found or the solution is discovered or everybody jumps on a spaceship and moves to Mars and the human civilization continues. There is not an end like that. It truly is the end. But that's not really, as Christians, how we view the end that is near. There's another way to even translate it, and the Amplified caught it. It said the end and culmination. Because the end can also mean that end to which all things relate, the aim, the purpose. It's the idea of a goal or a finish line. Does it mean the race is over? Yes, but it means that we leave the race and enter into the prize. Now, the first question that I think the Lord wants to both challenge and encourage his people with this morning is, do you have a worldly or a godly understanding of the end that is near? If it's worldly, all of the idea of the end stirs up in you is fear and grief and sorrow and anxiety. If it's godly, now hear me, there might still be a tinge of sorrow because we are, there are people in our lives who don't know the Lord and we want them to be ready. I'm not saying that is not a godly thing to have. But as for me, it's the anticipation of finally arriving at the culmination of all things, at the purpose of redemptive history, at the aim of everything that my life is about, whether it comes at my physical death or it comes through Christ's return. The end is the goal. It's not something to avoid or try to run from. It's the finish line. If you look with me at James chapter 5, verses 7 through 8, the context in the, the letter here is very similar to the context in 1 Peter, one of Christians who are experiencing suffering. And James, inspired by the same Holy Spirit as Peter, does not write about the end of the world as something for them to fear. What does he write? He says, be patient. And that implies that they're not to resist or to encourage resentment or retaliation towards those who are causing their suffering. 
Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm or be patient and establish because the Lord's coming is near. The day of the Lord, the end of this age, the return of Christ. As Christians, this is something we're to yearn for. Even so, Paul writes, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You see, there's a great reversal here. Because if we're living as people of this world... We're putting all of our eggs in the basket of this world. And so we're pursuing whatever pleasure this world has to offer. We're pursuing whatever purpose that we can wrestle up from this world. It's all about this world. And the idea of that ending is terrifying. But here's the thing. As Christians, Jesus promised we would experience suffering in this world. And we're to yearn for the time when that suffering ends. The finish line. The goal, the culmination of human history, we're to be patient, but we're to look forward to it with anticipation. All right, so verse 7 said, the end and culmination of all things is near, and then it moves to the therefore. Everything that follows after in this passage is how we should live as followers of Jesus in light of the fact that the end is near. And one thing I need to comment on, that the author here could say the end is near in the same way that we say it now, because in the scope of revelation history, in the scope of salvation history, the final climactic events had taken place so that the age of the church is just anticipating one final act of God, which is his return in the end of the world. So the end was ushered in. It was at the door from the time that Jesus rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sent the Holy Spirit on the church. So we've been living in the end times where the end of this world is at the door. It's at hand. It's near since then for 2,000 years. God's calendar and my calendar don't read the same way. But the end is near. And friends, it's only more near now than it was 2,000 years ago. Amen? So therefore, these are the instructions we're to follow as the church in light of this reality. First, it says to be sound-minded and self-controlled for the purpose of prayer. This reads differently in different translations. Some say to be alert and of sober mind. Others say the King James to be sober and watch unto prayer. Some have be serious and watchful in your prayers. The first word that's used is talking about sobriety and self-control and curbing our passions, those desires of our flesh. This is the opposite of allowing ourselves to have a dulled mind. Alcohol dulls your thinking. So we're to be sober. Anything that causes our thinking to become foggy, to become dull, we're instructed to avoid those things. We're not to let our passions and desires dull our focus. When the puppy comes along the track, 
to keep going. The second word that's translated in the Amplified as self-controlled can also mean sober or serious or watchful. And get this, it can mean calm and collected. Two very different perspectives of the end of the world. When you watch the end of the world movies, ain't nobody calm and collected. <laughs> they all run around like chickens with their heads cut off, trying to figure out how they can escape the end of the world. That's not us. We're to be watchful and calm and undistracted. To be sound-minded, to be self-controlled, it's the opposite of a dull mind, and it's the opposite of a distracted mind. It's to have the mind of Christ that recognizes that the finish line really is all that matters. So I can't dull my senses by the things this world offers me to try to help me cope. No, I have to turn to the Lord to help me cope because my mind needs to be alert. I can't be distracted by the things that this world has to offer me or by the drama or by the news or by the things that look cataclysmic. I can't be distracted by any of it. All of it has to drive me to be more sound-minded, to be more alert because the end of my salvation is near. And I can do that in God's Holy Spirit with calm. That is supernatural. This word that's used for self-controlled or watchful, it only shows up six times in the New Testament. Three of those six are in 1 Peter. This letter is emphasizing this idea of being watchful. Let's look at these, these references. The first one is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 4 to 8. 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 to 8. This is talking about, guess what? The day of the Lord. The end. Christ's return. It says, but you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. There's the word. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. We are in a battle. We need to be armored up and we need to keep our focus on the prize. The end is near. We can't be dulled. We can't be distracted. God forbid that we would be deceived. Look at 1 Timothy I'm sorry, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 to 5. Again, talking about the last days, it says, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you... Keep your head, that's the word. Be sober, be watchful in all situations. Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. See friends, that dull mind 
And that distracted mind that is driven by fleshly desires can lead into deception. And it's that picture of just, let me find people, sources that'll tell me what I wanna hear because I've started to like this world, this life, rather than keeping my eyes fixed on the goal. Now, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, therefore with minds that are alert and fully sober, there's the word, set your hope on the grace to be brought you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Are you noticing that all of these warnings about how we're to be sober, to be watchful, they're all associated with what? The end. It's a consistent warning, and this is to the church. That church, you've got to keep your head on straight. You've got to keep your focus. No dulling your mind with other things. No distractions. No deceptions. And then the last one is also in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be alert and of sober mind. There it is. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Can you hear this progression from having dull thinking to living in a way that is distracted so that you're vulnerable to deception until there comes a point where the enemy of your soul would devour We have to be alert. We have to be focused on where we're headed because the battle is raging. The number one way I believe that the enemy is coming against believers in our time is that he's trying to dull their minds distract their spirits, deceive their souls, and drag them down with him in destruction. Jesus is victorious, and we don't have to fall for any of this stuff. <laughs> but we need to be aware of it. And it's why scripture warns us over and over and over again that we're to be watchful. But why again? <laughs> Look at verse 7 one more time. It's for the purpose of prayer. Because we've got to drill down to the source of our hope, to the source of our strength. So we've got to keep clear thinking. We've got to keep sober. We've got to keep focused so that we can prioritize that communion with God, that intimacy with the Lord. And it's only out of that that then we're able to be useful for the sake of his kingdom in these last days. God is calling up people of prayer to be watchmen, to be watchful, to keep that watch in the middle of the night or in the early morning, to be willing to allow the Holy Spirit to keep us awakened, but it means we can't numb ourselves out. And man, our society loves to do that. If it's not played a game on a phone or on a console, or surfing the web, or on social media, or watching a movie, or killing time on YouTube. We have all kinds of ways that society heaps on us to dull our minds 
and distract us. When God is calling his people to prayer. I'm not telling you you can't do any of those things. But I am telling you that if our appetites for those things are strong, then our appetite to be in the Lord's presence will be our very vulnerable in this time. The enemy wants to dull your thinking, and he wants to distract you. And he wants to trip you up in nets of deception because he does not want you to finish the race. As the end approaches, the enemy wants to devour believers by dulling and distracting our minds. Instead, we are to be sound-minded and self-controlled for the purpose of prayer. We are not to be those who are deceived, but we are to be those who press in so that we can be used for his kingdom. So the first thing we do, knowing the end is near, is that we pray. Secondly, and above all, in verse 8, it says that we're to love. Specifically, to love one another in the church. Remember we said that First Peter keeps cycling back to the same themes over and over and over again. And here we are, friends. You believe that Jesus is coming soon, so do I. So what does that mean? It means I need to love you more fervently and more deeply. And you're stuck with me, too. <laughs> We've got to love each other because we're in it together. So when Zach trips along the way on the race, we're more connected than ever. And we reach down and we pick one another up and we keep going because there is a goal in sight. It says specifically that this love covers a multitude of sins. This is a quote from Proverbs chapter 10. If you look with me there, Proverbs 10, verse 12, the NIV translates it this way. Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. This is talking about what it looks like to love each other more fervently and deeply. It means that instead of identifying each other's faults and flaws and how we might have offended one another, hatred does that to stir up conflict. Love overlooks it. Of course you're flawed. You're human. Of course I'm flawed. I'm human. If I haven't hurt your feelings unintentionally at some point, I'm sure I will because I am not perfect and I don't understand how your mind works fully. I don't know how you translate and interpret everything I say and everything I do. We are flawed people who don't know it all. We don't have it all together. But fervent love chooses to overlook it instead of pulling it out to stir up conflict. That's what hatred does. Love covers over a multitude of sins. Look with me in the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. We'll read verses 4 to 5. It says, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking. Catch this, it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love covers over a multitude of sins. Instead of allowing them to fuel anger and record keeping, you hurt me here, you hurt me here, you hurt me here. 
You disappointed me here. You said the wrong thing here. Man, in our flesh, all of us are prone to do just that. But God calls us to a kind of love, an ever-deepening love for one another that chooses to let go of that. I liked the way a study note in the English, um, English Standard Version Study Bible word of this it said, where love abounds, offenses are frequently overlooked and quickly forgotten. Offenses are frequently overlooked and quickly forgotten. Now this is to be held in tension with another scripture that promises being able to cover over a multitude of sins in James 5. So look with me there, James 5, 19 to 20. It says, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Can I tell you that both this scripture and the scripture that we've read in 1 Peter can be taken to extremes that are outside of the Holy Spirit's direction. There are times when an offense needs to be addressed, especially when someone is wandering away from the truth of the gospel so that their soul is in danger. We're instructed then to go to them and bring them back to the truth because it's in the truth that they can truly have their sins covered by the blood of Jesus. Amen? So there are times when things need to be addressed, when we need to be that voice of correction. But friends, it has to be in the spirit and not in the flesh. The fleshly holding on to offense, the fleshly looking for people's faults, the fleshly keeping a record of wrongs, that has to go. And let me tell you something, if that hasn't gone, I would probably just encourage you not to try to practice the James 5 scripture because you're not in the spirit and you're probably going to do it wrong. If you're still holding on to offenses, if you're still keeping a record of every time they've hurt you, you're probably not the right person to go to them about the state of their soul and confront them about the sin in their life. Just don't. Focus on learning how to be a person that loves fervently and deeply that covers over a multitude of sins. And in that place, the Spirit can give guidance and direction to speak hard truth when it's needed. The end is near, friends. We've got to love each other fervently and deeply. Secondly, it, it starts to unpack then what it looks like, this love, this deep love. In verse 9, it says to be hospitable to one another without complaint. To be hospitable. A little bit of context. In that day, inns were not a very nice place, place to stay. Hotels, inns of that day. And oftentimes they were dangerous places to stay. And so in the historical context, specifically, this applied in the early church to believers who were traveling. And it was unsafe for them to go and check in to the Holiday Inn in town. And so even though you may not know them super well, you had a bond in Jesus, you knew they loved the Lord. And so they might come knocking at your church's door, at your door, and say, hey, we're followers of Jesus, we're traveling, we need a place to eat a meal and lay our head tonight. And so they were to offer hospitality. This specifically applied to leaders, traveling evangelists, prophets. We see it throughout the biblical. 
travel. They would stay in the homes of believers who were to offer them hospitality. We're still to be hospitable today. The context might have shifted. The command has not. We're to offer hospitality, meeting needs, to those within the body, especially to be people of hospitality. This was valued in, as a quality that was needed for people who served in leadership in the early church. I'm not going to read these, but if you want to note the references, 1 Timothy 3.12 and Titus 1.8 both say that this kind of hospitality was required of elders in the church. If you're not a person of hospitality, you can't be a leader. It was a valued trait. But then specifically it says that you're to offer hospitality without complaint or without grumbling. The Lord gave me this sentence. It is possible to sin by doing the right thing the wrong way. It is possible to sin by doing the right thing the wrong way. And haven't we all been guilty of it? God, I know I'm supposed to do this, but no, 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 I get home for too many people, I think. We're to practice loving one another without the negative talk that follows or comes alongside of it. No complaining, no grumbling, we just do it. Look at verse 10. We're to love by looking over sin. Not sin, sorry. Looking over flaws. We're to love by being hospitable. And verse 10 tells us how we're to love by serving with spiritual gifts. Just as each one of you has received a special gift, a spiritual talent, an ability graciously given by God, employ it in serving one another as is appropriate for good stewards of God's multifaceted grace, faithfully using the diverse, varied gifts and abilities granted to Christians by God's unmerited favor. The first principle here that we need to take seriously as the end is near is that God has given you at least one, if not multiple, spiritual gifts. And secondly, that he intends you to steward those well by using them to serve other believers whom you are loving more fervently and more deeply. And then we have this idea here that I think is important for us to catch, that we're given spiritual gifts as gifts of God's grace. What's that mean? I didn't do anything to earn a spiritual gift. It was out of God's unmerited favor that he gave it to me. And grace is something that actually empowers me to do differently. Apart from the grace, I wouldn't have the gift to serve. Because of the grace, I'm empowered with a gift that enables me to serve. Grace is empowerment. It's not just an overlooking of sin. Grace enables us to live differently. And we're to use these gifts to serve others. Verse 11, whoever speaks to the congregation is to do so as one who speaks the oracles, the utterances, the very words of God. Whoever serves the congregation is to do so as one who serves by the strength which God abundantly supplies. 
in this verse, Peter, under the Holy Spirit's direction, breaks the spiritual gifts down into two categories, gifts of speaking and gifts of serving. It's a pretty nice breakdown, actually, those two categories. I'll just name a few of spiritual gifts listed elsewhere and how they fit. Some of the speaking gifts would be prophesying, preaching, teaching, evangelizing, words of knowledge and wisdom, and there's more. Some of the serving gifts would be hospitality, helping, administration, giving, healing, mercy, and there's more. So there's two categories here, categories of the mouth of speaking and categories of the service of the hands and the feet. And then the instruction here is that those who have the speaking gifts are to speak only the words of God, not their own. And that those who have the serving gifts are to serve with the strength and empowerment God would give them, not their own. And can I tell you, I think this even translates into the lives of unbelievers who sometimes will be able to operate in the gifts that God has given them, but empowered by other spirits other than the Spirit of God. That unclean spirits could empower people to operate in something that is an area that in some way God had gifted them, but they're using that gift for the purposes of darkness rather than the purposes of light. I also think there's a warning here for us as Christians that is this. It is possible for gifts to operate in another strength other than the strength of the Lord. And therefore, the presence of gifts does not necessarily mean the presence of God. And this is a way that people get distracted and deceived. There's giftedness there. That doesn't mean it's of the Lord. Thus, Christians are specifically instructed, if you have gifts of speaking, you better be sure you have a word from the Lord that comes out of your mouth. If you have gifts for service, don't do it in your own strength. It's not going to have the same effect. You're to do it in that supernatural strength that God gives you where? In your prayer closet, where your focus is as the end is approaching. And we love one another through this. They're serving each other with the gifts that God has given us. And it's all for his glory. When we do it this way, he receives glory and power, dominion and praise. All right, I want to come back to this summary chart. We're almost done this morning. We looked at this last week. How all throughout 1 Peter, we focused on how the gospel is lived out in relationship. I just want you to hone in where we've been today. Fearing Father God, keeping our focus on him, and loving the church. And as the end approaches, we're instructed to drill down there. To not be distracted, to not be dulled. The end is near. So we're to focus on prayer and love of one another. Is that where your focus is? Or is it on stuff that'll burn? Is your view of the end of the world one that says, oh, finally? The undiluted, presence of God and the reward that I've journey for. Or is your perspective still a bit lonely? That God says, hey, you've been allowing things to dull your thinking. 
You've been distracted. You better be careful or you might be deceived. God wants to call you back to what matters most. And it's here and it's here. Father, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you that you don't want us to be caught up unaware in the things that are happening around us. God, that you've given us warnings in your word because you want us to finish the race. Lord, would you help us as your people to keep clear minds that are intently focused on you and the work you have us to do in serving and loving one another. It's in Jesus' name.